Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. And all of God's people say, amen. Amen. All right, family, our sermon today is called An Urgent Message We Must Stand On. Listen, it's a lot of passage to get through, so I'm not going to be up here long. I'm just going to tell you right now, I ain't even got much of an intro. We're going to jump straight into it. Today in chapter 15, we're in the climax of the book. This is where it all rises and falls. This is where all the questions that's been arisen through this book, why are these people so arrogant? Why are these people so drawn away? Why are these people only fighting for their own rights? And Paul in this chapter says the reason why is because they probably don't believe what they say they believe. Paul was arguing that the reason they lived the way they were living with their bickering, trying to puff themselves up, living promiscuous lives and fighting for their rights at the expense of others is because they really didn't believe what they said they believed. And all throughout this text, he is going to make the argument that the resurrection should change everything about us. If you don't hear nothing from this text because of how much text we will cover, I want you to know we must live, stand, and believe in the reality of the resurrection because it will not be in vain. At the end of the day, this is all we have. This is our final hope that death has been done away with and it should change everything about us. And Paul is preaching with such urgency. This is why I'm like, all I could do is just bring the urgency of this text. So diving in, verse 1 through 2, he says, I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Paul starts off his argument and says, the resurrection must be received, believed, and held on to at all costs. He's, he's, he's arguing this fact that I'm just bringing to you the best thing I got. This is all I got. I love how he puts it in the NASB, I mean, how they translate it in NASB. They says, I want to make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached, which you received, which you stand which you're being saved by, if you just hold firmly to this word at the end of the day, this is it. Unless you don't believe this is it. Unless you don't believe this is as good as it gets believing his resurrection. The church of Corinth didn't believe this at that time. Now here's the interesting thing. They believed in the immortality of the soul. That was without question for most pagans. They believed there was a soul that would live on, but they kind of had this idea that the soul just kind of goes on to live as a ghost. But that's it. They have no hope. It's just a a ghost wandering around, suffering the rest of the the rest of creation, rest of eternity. No hope. Bruce Winters, writing his his commentary on the resurrection, he says, the resurrection of the body was absurd to them, to most pagans. 
And some Christians appear to have seen eternal life in terms of immortality of the soul. They also appear to have endorsed the implications which pagans had drawn. What was these implications? Well, popular paganism argued that the senses surrounding the immortal soul were given by nature, but could not be enjoyed beyond the grave. So if they had money, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What Bruce was writing is what these pagans believed is this is as good as it gets. In this life, you got to do all you can. If you want full satisfaction, you got to get it now. Drake used to say a word back in the day, YOLO. That's what they they were kind of holding on to. This it. Yeah, we know there's this like spiritual afterlife and we kind of go into the land of the dead, but that's it. We will not have any satisfaction beyond this life, beyond what we could do right now. And this is the problem is the Corinth church, the Corinthian church had taken in this very belief system. This is why they said, well, if we want to know how to be great, we got to follow the greatest leaders. That's the first four chapters. If you want to know how to have the full pleasures, you should have sex with everything around. That's chapter five through seven. If you want to, if you want to feel satisfied or feel superior, you should have it your way, like Burger King. That's chapter eight and nine. Chapter 10 through 14 has been, if you want to feel spiritual, you should use all the gifts right now for your good. They felt that this was it, and this is the only place they would find full satisfaction. How often do we live similar to this? I want you to know, anytime we take uh, control of everything in our lives and try to figure out, to make it turn out for our own glory, and I'm not saying that we should not be stewards of our life. No, absolutely. We should steward our lives well because it glorifies the good gift giver who gave us this gift called life. But anytime we try to be our own savior of our lives, saying that I have to find a way to be satisfied now and I have to satisfy my needs. Then we call our own, we try to become our own saviors. It might sound like this in your life. If I just get the right career, my life will be perfect. If I just get in the right school and learn everything I can, I will have it all together. If I get the right career, my life will be together. If I get the right person, oh, man, I'll have it. This person will complete me. And on and on, we strive to make these things happen. And maybe we don't say that out loud, that this will satisfy and make us hope and give us full, perfected hope and satisfy our needs. But if we were to question and Dig down into our hearts. Will we find ourselves asking these questions? Will this satisfy me? I believe if we were to dig in, we will all find that one thing to say, if I just had this, it would complete me. I remember sitting down with my counselor, and he says, okay, you're, how do you feel about yourself? I was about, at a, I sound about a seven, maybe a six sometimes. He said, what would you need to be at a 10? I said, man, if I just had my degree and 
you know, I was, he said, okay, cool, you got your degree? Are you at a 10 yet? I was like, well, then, you know, I would like to write some books. And he was like, oh, okay, cool, you've written all the best theological books. Are you at a 10 yet? And I was like, no, nah, I think, you know, if I could just get my marriage together. And he just kept going. He said, okay, cool, cool. You are president of, you're king of the world. Are you satisfied? He said, if you're honest with yourself, the answer is no. Family, no matter how much we strive, and yes, we should strive faithfully, but not to save ourselves. We will never be able to feel the glory-sized hold in our hearts. Instead of believing in the one who is faithful, we often believe if I'm just faithful, I'll finally get it. Family, who do you hold on to? Who do you stand beside? Who do you put all of your faith in? Is it in your hands or the one who promises to make you whole? Who promises that he will be faithful to you? Um, I had this interest, I had this fun story. I'm not picking on my son. This was years ago when you were younger, so don't worry. I ain't talking junk about you. But when he was little, he used to come up to me and be like, Daddy, I'm hungry. And I'm like, okay, wait just a minute. I'm cooking. And after five seconds, he'd be like, is it ready yet? Son, I'm cooking. And then a couple more minutes, he's laughing because he knows it's true. <laughs> he was like, Daddy, I'm, I'm hungry. And I was like, son, have I ever let you starve? Have I ever left you? Have I ever dropped you? Have I ever let you down? Now, truth be told, I'm a fallible man. I probably have done all those things before, besides starving. He's still here. Still here. <laughs> but the message I was trying to get across is, son, I have been faithful. I am being faithful. But you just trust and believe it. The message of the resurrection says the exact same thing. That God has been faithful. He is being faithful. And we can just hold fast to him and believe in him. How are you living right now that reveals you believe that this resurrection is changing everything? How can we trust, have this level of trust that the resurrection is truly satisfying and doing everything? But well, this is the remaining argument that Paul's going to make in verses 3 through 11. Look at verse 3 through 11 for me. First, looking at 3 and 4, he says, For I passed on to you as most important, which is this urgency you see, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, before we run past that, what Scriptures is he talking about? You do understand we're writing, a, he's writing an epistle right now. If you know church history, the Gospels have not been pinned themselves yet. Not meaning the Gospel hasn't happened, it just hasn't been pinned down yet. So what scriptures is he talking about? Well, the hope of the resurrection isn't just a New Testament thing. It is found all throughout the Old Testament. <laughs> Harold Gandhi in his article for Master's University, The Resurrection According to the Scriptures, he says, while there is generally agreed upon theology of resurrection in the Old Testament, we see it in Job chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. Psalm chapter 49, verse 15. Psalm 73, chapter 20, I mean, verse 23 through 28. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1 through 4. I could keep going on. The point is, it's all in the Old Testament. 
These people believed that they was going to get out the grave one day. But then Gandhi points to Psalm 16 in particular. Psalm 16, verse 10. He says, David's prayer of trust in Yahweh climaxes with the confidence, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. He goes on to raise some contest the idea of resurrection in this verse in favor of salvation from mortal danger. But the verb abandon and the proposition of where is refers to leaving someone behind. If you look at how it is in context, David's hope that he would not be left in the realm of the dead, he doesn't merely want to be saved from immediate physical danger, but to overcome death. In other words, David envisioned and a resurrection. David put all his hope on one day this corrupt world will fall away and I will be raised from the dead and see glory. Paul says, we got that testified in the scripture. Now, if you're sitting there like, well, that's enough. Well, Paul, that's not enough for me. I don't believe it. Okay, then Paul goes on. He continues his argument. He says, then after the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, then the 12. Why is this so big? Because Cephas, Peter, was one of the disciples who walked with Jesus for the three years he was here before his death, burial, and resurrection. And his 12. So this was all 12 of the disciples. So these were men who touched, ate, fellowship, lived in accordance with Jesus for three years, seen the miracles, and finally saw him face to face. And I love how when Jesus came back in the Gospels, if you ever go back and read the Gospels, there's this sign that not only did Jesus come out of the grave, he was a physical body because he sat down and shared a meal with them. He told Thomas, come touch the holes in my hand. He, he said, we have this confidence because we know the guys who saw the guy. Oh, okay, well, those 12 people could have made it up. All right, well, if that ain't enough people for you, then he goes on. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them, they're still alive, but have fallen asleep. Family, if anybody ever contests the idea of the resurrection, it is one of the most undisputed things in history because we have so many people who attest he got up. And for every... Atheists and agnostic I've talked to, and just those who wrestle with the ideal of Jesus, we're like, we have too much historical documents that Jesus lived. We got historical documents outside of the Bible that he was crucified. And then Paul goes on to say, and we got a 515, 512 dudes right now. Now, some of them died. But 512 guys at that time, they could have went and talked to personally. Listen, if you had that much evidence in a murder case, I want to let you know that brother going to jail. <laughs> Jesus got up. Then he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. And then Paul said, if that ain't enough for you, if that ain't enough, last is one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Why is this such a big deal? Well, Paul's going to explain why it's such a big deal. For I am least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of this ideal, the resurrection happening. He hated it and tried to shut it down, but the one who got out of the grave shut him down. 
Paul was so adamant because he says this gospel is not just something I'm telling you to believe. I'm telling you it's transformed me. It's changed everything about me. I was on a path to destruction by trying to take down the church. And then the one I was trying to destroy stopped me in my tracks. He didn't destroy me. He made me his. (sighs) I don't even know if y'all caught that. The one that you hated has now said, I want to bring you in and make you family. Lord, y'all, listen. The testimony of the resurrection is not just in what's being preached and what we hear through history, but it's also revealed in the lives of his, of his saints. If you meet somebody who's just, look, they're different. I don't know what it is about you. Everything about you is different. That is evidence that the resurrection has taken place and it is taking hold of someone. Evidence that your life has changed is that Christ got out of the grave. Not only did he die for your sins, but he lived and he got up for your sins. Family, your life should point to the fact that there is a resurrected Savior. This is what our lives should reflect. This is what we should be pointing out at all times. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I've been transformed. And for those who believe, you should be being transformed. But sadly... Sometimes we can't tell Christians from the rest of the world. I think about throughout church history and persecution which happened. I've been spending a lot of time just thinking on the persecution of the church throughout church history. Acts chapter 12 is an interesting chapter. It's not in my notes, but it just I just remembered it just now. Herod started and going killing Christians. Now, at that time, there was no membership roles to what church you at. You wasn't at City of Refuge or First Baptist Columbia. You wasn't at, you know, there was no First Baptist Antioch. But yet, Herod was able to find the Christians. How? What, what, changed, what stood out from Herod, for Herod, that he could tell, oh yeah, that's a Christian right there. There was tangible change things. Their life. Their discipline, the very fact they were willing to stand when they knew the odds were being stacked against them. They were willing to take in the sick. They were willing to serve one another. This testified they must believe something different. They must be one of them. (laughs) If someone was to look at your life today, would they be able to tell you're one of them? (laughs) That you are of the fold. And if not, in what ways is your life not reflecting you believe in the resurrection? Family, our life should always hold to this reality that we believe in a risen Savior. But here's the problem. Sometimes our life do not hold to we believe in this. And Paul says, if you doubt the resurrection or you don't believe in the resurrection or you don't live as though there's a resurrection, there's, with no resurrection, there's no hope. Look at verses 12 through 19 for me. It says, now if Christ was claimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Paul was like, how can we live and say we don't really believe the thing we say we believe? That means... Christ ain't get up. 
We're hopeless. There's nothing we can do. And everything that is being said about him means nothing. Paul's suffering meant nothing. The church being persecuted for over 2,000 years meant nothing if there's no resurrection. And not only is the proclamation in vain, he goes on in verse 16. Moreover, we have been found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised Christ, raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. What he's saying is, that means God isn't really good. God really doesn't save. God really doesn't give us no hope. If there's no resurrection, ultimately, there's no hope. Now, some of you might say that. I say, of course I believe in the resurrection, but how often do we live as though there's no hope? How often we live as though there's no resurrection when the weight of the world feels as it's stacking up on our shoulders? Do we shrink back to the ground? Or do we feel like the ground is going to collapse? That we're going to die? When our sins come rearing their heads? When our shame shows up? When that person we don't like walks in the room and something inside of us makes us feel as that all hope is lost? How often do we feel hopeless? Family, family, sadly because Sadly, sometimes we live as though there's no resurrection. And I don't want to say this to shame you. No, if you're here today and you feel hopeless today, you feel as though you've been wrestling and you're all alone, that no one is there, this is literally why we get together. So we can continue to boast each other on and say that is foolish to think there's no hope. For we have a Savior who will give us hope. We have a Savior who has defeated death. We have a Savior who gives us everything and will make us whole. If you are here today, let me tell you, there is hope. The reason there is hope is because there is a resurrection. <laughs> are you encouraging your brothers and sisters daily to look to the resurrected Savior? Are you steering each other on to trust in the perfect work of Christ? How can you do better at this? How can we come together in our men's fellowship and steer each other on, in our women's fellowship to steer each other on, in our Bible studies to steer each other on and say there is hope? Don't live as though there is none. Now, how can we know there's hope? Paul goes in on verses 20 to 28. The resurrection deals first with our first issue, sin. It deals with our biggest issue, sin. Verse 20 through 28 says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, in Christ all is made alive. What he is pointing to is we know there's the reality of sin. We know that Adam and Eve fell in the very beginning of creation. Our forefathers, they rebelled against this holy God who we were meant to have a relationship with and that severed our relationship. 
And because of that, we have continued to walk in patterns and likeness after our forefathers. Death has come because the first, the first Adam sinned. And sin has continuously been on a rampage because the first Adam sinned. And we can all look around and know that sin is real. Turn on the news. You know sin is real. Turn on social media. Turn off social media, too. But turn on social media. You know sin is real. Look in the mirror when you fall short. You know that sin is real. Oh, beloved, if we have a present reality that sin is real, we also have a present reality that it must be hope away from this sin. If we know that death is real, we must have a present reality that life must be real also. So where is our life? Well, verse 23 to the end of the book, he says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterwards at his coming to those belonging to Christ. And in Christ first died, and because he died and stayed in the grave on our behalf, then he, when he resurrected, he was seen as the first fruit. I'm going to pause there. This is not in my notes, but it's just a thought I had. So, you know, in the New Testament, there's multiple people that died and rose again, right? I mean, or got up out of the grave, right? You have the little boy who was sick, the little boy who was sick, and they were on the way to his gravesite. Jesus stopped, touched him, and said, get up. He was with his mother again. We have the daughter of uh, the, the uh, thank you, yeah, <laughs> we have the daughter of the centurion um, leader, and Jesus went to the house and told her, get up, she was asleep. We have Lazarus. Jesus spoke as a Lazarus come out of the grave. Now, what makes Christ's resurrection so different? Have you ever thought about what made Christ's resurrection so different? See, the difference is Jesus, the one who holds all life in his hand, he actually said it to Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. He says, I am the life and the resurrection. All who believe in me will be resurrected. He was the one who had the power to call them back to life. When Jesus went in the grave, he was the one that had the power to take his life back in his own hands and raise out of the grave. He is the resurrection because he's the one with the power of life and death. He's the only one who truly has the power to give us life. So here, Paul is saying, we have the one who own, the only one who can truly give us life and give us satisfaction. <laughs> That's why Christ is the first fruit. And at his coming, those who belong to Christ, meaning those in him, then comes to an end, the end. Comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to abo be abolished is death. Because God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When it's everything is subject to Christ, then the son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him. So the that God may be all in all. What Paul is saying is, if everything is subject to Christ, if he's the one that has life and death in his hands, if he is the one who truly says, I'm the only one who can offer the fullness of life, then everything's under me. And everything's under him because he is a part of the Godhead. 
God the Father has given all the authority to God the Son, and now through the Holy Spirit, we are made alive because all the triune God is putting everything under themselves and under subjection to themselves. In other words, all the issues we face here, Christ has already dealt with. It's under his feet. All of our sins, dealt with. All of our shames, dealt with. All of our insecurities, dealt with. All of the things that we will experience, all the harms, the hurts we've had, dealt with. It's under his feet if we're in him. This is why the resurrection is so powerful. This is why it is so powerful. Because in him, all has already been dealt with. Family, why do you continue to try to deal with your issues and your strength? But he says, in my strength, all has been dealt with. I have full authority. Everything is subject to me. Will you trust in the one who's dealt with all of your insecurities, all of your issues, all of your sins, all of your shortcomings? Will you trust in him or will you continue to try to work it out in your strength? It is foolish to try to continue to live this life without the strength of Christ living in you. It is pointless. Now, this is for both believer and non-believer, because here's the reality. If you say you're a Christian, but you doubt the resurrection, well, I want to let you know, even your Christian walk is pointless without the resurrection. I'm going to jump down to verse 29 through 33, 34. Now, verse 29, we're not going to deal with much. I'm going to give you a quick overview. It says, otherwise that what will they do who are being baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Then why are people being, uh, why are people baptized for them? This was a, a strange practice that only, of, only was revealed in the Corinth church. And Paul was like, it's kind of idiotic if you are bap- getting baptized because you believe your uncle cousin is going to make it into heaven through your baptism if you don't really believe that the resurrection is there. He's not saying that's a practice we should follow. <laughs> now, sadly, some people have taken this out of context. We have the Mormons who have taken this out of context and tried to baptize, be baptized for the dead. We have the Catholics who take this out of context. And in their mind, if we just pay enough or we get baptized enough or if we baptize the dead before they're fully gone, then they may be able to make it in. Paul's saying that's foolish. That's foolish. It was foolish for the Corinthian church, and it's foolish for us to hold on to that. But in that foolishness, it also shows the ridiculousness of us not trusting in the resurrection. Because at the end of the day, if there's no resurrection, why, why even do that? If we live hopeless, why even do that? Now, I could talk more about that verse after this service, but let's dive into verse 30 through 34. Like I said, I want to give a brief look at that. It says, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I, boast, as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I, fought, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Paul was saying, 
if you're living the Christian life and there's no resurrection, then all of the suffering that we will experience as Christians is pointless. And the church of Corinth was starting to get meddled in with these people who were still practicing pagan rituals as though they didn't believe it. He says, hey, listen, come apart. Be separate. You are supposed to be different from them. Right now, you say you're a Christian, but you're living as though there's no resurrection. And he says, you can look at my own life. You're telling me I'm suffering and there's nothing? This is as good as it gets in my suffering? That's pointless. And shame on you if you say it's pointless. He prayed early for the persecuted church in Pakistan. You're telling me their suffering means nothing if there's no resurrection? See, this doesn't hit us because we don't suffer that much. As Americans, we don't suffer often. And sometimes, I mean, don't get me wrong, we suffer. There's suffering. There's degrees of suffering. But we don't suffer so much that we long for something better, that we long for a better day. We try to muster the strength up to take it up, take our strength by our own hands, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Paul says that is pointless if there's no resurrection. And us living around people who live that way or believe that way is pointless if there's no resurrection. Stop believing the foolishness. The American church, that would be stop looking to the American dream for your hope. Stop looking for what this country says it offers you for satisfaction. No, we must look to the Christ who is resurrected on our, for our behalf. Where do you look? Where are you looking? What are you trusting in? Is it in the resurrected, in the resurrection? See, here's the thing. I'm going to jump down to verse 40 through 45. If there is a resurrection, the, the church of Corinth was asking, well, what is it going to look like? How's the body going to look? Paul doesn't go into much detail here. He says, look, you know what it looks like to live in Adam. You die because of sin. But in verse 40 through 45, he says, if that's what it looks like to be in Adam, what would it look like to be from somebody who came from glory? You, you, look, you know what it looks like to come from somebody who came from dirt and goes back to dirt. So what does it look like to go to the one who goes back to glory? There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is when the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a, is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a living, giving, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. What he's saying here is we will have physical bodies. What would it be like? I don't know. It's just going to be glorious. And this is what I can tell you. All the aches that I feel in my hips and in my knees, I ain't going to have them no more. All those times I wake up with colds and infirmities, I ain't going to have them no more. It's going to be a glorious physical body. And everything you suffer in this world, you won't have that anymore because you will be glorious. 
Do you believe one day that you will taste and see and experience glory for yourself? This is why we put all of our hope in the resurrection. This is why we trust that Christ really did rise. But putting all of our hope in this resurrection doesn't mean we put all of our efforts into getting to the resurrection. No, no. The glorious resurrection that we put our hope in has already been obtained. And it already has, has been done on our behalf. Verses 50 through 58, and I'm coming to a close. He says, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, meaning your works, your efforts cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise incorruptible and we will be changed for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When the, this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all ain't get excited enough for me. When this body, there's, there's a song I love to say, it says, there's a leak in this old building, yeah, and my soul has got to move. My soul has got to move. My soul has got to move. There's a leak in this old building, yeah, and my soul has got to move. I'm talking a building, a building not made by man's hands. We will experience victory because our body will be made by a holy hands and not by man's. <laughs> this temple with all the leaks and breaks and cracks in it will be done away with and we will see a full glorified body. <laughs> Death has been defeated. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for the believer? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This is as, good, as bad as it gets for those who believe. The sufferings you face now, this is as bad as it gets for those who believe. Those you lose through death, this is as bad as it gets for those who believe. You, Those who experience sickness, this is as bad as it gets for those who believe. Those who feel as though the world is crushing them, let me tell you, he will raise you up. He will give you strength. And we have this hope because the first fruit, the Christ, has already been risen he came, he lived perfectly in ways that we could not live. He died what we deserved, the death we deserved. Was put in a grave that our bodies should have been laid in, yet he didn't stay in the grave, but our sins and shames that put him there did. <laughs> he physically walked out the grave with all power in his hands, and he says, everyone and me will be found hopeful. This is an urgent message because this is the hope we stand on. Christ, Christ, Jesus Christ's work on our behalf. He is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the resurrection, 
of the saints. And he is coming back with all power in his hands at that trumpet sound to bring us and change us and give us glorified bodies. And we will see him forevermore. So my question for you, where's your hope found today? Is it in the resurrection and the power of Christ or is it in your strength? Is your resurrection, is the resurrection the thing that drives you, moves you, and helps you to live fully for his glory? Or is it because you feel you've got to prove yourself to him? Family, put your hope in Christ. Not in you. You'll never be good enough in your own strength. But that's why we can labor, because we don't labor in vain, because we know the strength we work in. In a few moments, we will sing this song, but it says, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the firmest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are stilled when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ is where I stand. I urge you, urgently stand in him and trust in him. Will you pray with me? Father, that is what I pray is our testimony today. That in you we stand and have our being, that in you we are being made whole and finding the fulfillment of our faith. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful that the work you have done on your cross is on our behalf, and in your resurrection we now can find life. We have been fully justified before a holy Father, and now we are welcome to come and stand before him boldly. I pray today that all under the sound of my voice would believe these truths, and if they don't believe yet, Lord, draw them to yourself. Reveal yourself to them. Oh, Father. Help us put our hope in the work of your son. Help us to stop striving in our own strength, but know that in his strength we are made whole and we will be satisfied. Lord, be with your saints today as we continue to lift up praise to you and help us to see you as our cornerstone where our grace and where our hope can be found. Lift all these things up to you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and continue to sing?